0: Welcome to China in Context, the weekly podcast from the SOAS China Institute in London. I'm Zuri Lenetsky, a research fellow at the Eurasia Group Foundation in Washington, DC. I grew up skiing in the Canadian Rockies. Every winter, I track the weather forecast at my favorite ski resorts so that I can find soft, fluffy powder to ski on. But the changing climate has brought disappointment for many skiers over the past few years as well as a host of other global problems. Some of these were obvious in China last year. Extremely low temperatures, damaged wheat on China's farms, and heat waves in the summer led to power blackouts. As a major consumer of fossil fuels, as well as a rapidly growing emitter of greenhouse gases, China is often the central focus in the global debate on the issue of climate change. I'm pleased to welcome a journalist and broadcaster who has spent many years studying China and its approach to the environment. She is Isabel Hilton, founder of China Dialogue. Isabel, thanks so much for joining me to discuss this pressing topic.
1: It's a real pleasure to be here. Thank you for the invitation.
0: So to get us started, how does China experience climate change at home?
1: well you've mentioned uh, a couple of the effects we've seen more and more extreme weather as you say there were drought uh, there were there were severe droughts last year which particularly affected sichuan province which is a major producer of hydroelectricity for china so that was why there were power outages. But we've also seen, I I don't know if you remember, there was a terrible flash flood in Zhengzhou, which is a city in central China. Actually, a city that had been built uh, relatively recently or expanded recently with climate in mind. It was meant to be what they call a sponge city, a city that can deal with floods. But they had nearly a year's rainfall over the course of a few days. And it was an absolutely devastating flood, which Filled up the city's um, uh, metro, for example, where people trapped on trains with rising water. It was an extremely worrying event uh, because it's a harbinger, or obviously of what of what might happen in the future. Um, in the in the longer term, most of China's development is uh, on, on the east coast, and a lot of it is in low lying delta cities, which are clearly vulnerable to sea level rise. And on a general point. You know, China has a very big population and not a lot of ecological headroom. So it's already water scarce. North China is, you know, Beijing is one of the world's driest capitals. It's it's essentially a desert which lives on the water from the rivers that flow from, from the Qinghai-Tibet Plateau. All of that will be exacerbated by climate change.
0: So this leads me to my next question, which is how is the government forming policy to tackle some of these problems or is it forming policy at all to tackle these problems?
1: It's very much forming policy and you know I, I started China Dialogue in 2006 and the year before China had become the world's biggest emitter by volume of, of greenhouse gases. Up till then, in that period from Deng Xiaoping's reform and opening and the very rapid industrialization and economic development of China, the official line had been um, pollute first, clean up later, GDP is everything, and also uh, China as a developing country didn't have legal obligations under the Kyoto Protocol to curb its greenhouse gases all of this kind of resulted in a sort of blasting away for for two or three decades. Um, Terrible industrial pollution, terrible problems associated with that model of development, and of course had become the world's biggest emitter. So we we had this coincidence of, of moments when the, the, the initial catch-up phase of the economy was running out of steam, you know, it's, it's the same as every, uh, every Asian tiger, you move people off the land, into the factories, you exploit your, your primary assets of cheap labour and so on, and you make goods with low added value in China's case rather wastefully of energy and other inputs. And that was really a model that was clearly exhausted by the, by the middle of the first uh, decade of this century. So China was looking to upgrade its economy That meant it was looking for the technologies of the future, the technologies that China could invest in, develop, the technologies it could own instead of licensing. And these two things came together. So so China realized that the technologies of the future would be low carbon technologies. And it began a massive program of investment, which has gone on ever since in everything to do with the energy transition. So, uh, renewables, solar, wind, batteries, electric cars, um, carbon capture experiments, uh, nuclear, everything that you can think of, which are components of the the transition, China has invested a massive program in. And uh, at the same time, it developed a theory called eco-civilization, which has now moved into the highest uh, policy sphere. So it's embedded in the constitution, it's embedded in the uh, in the party constitution also. And that means that uh, China has begun to rethink what the costs of the first model of development are and to think about a more sustainable economy, a more circular economy, more energy efficient economy and finally has set a target of becoming net zero by 2060, a decade later than we would like, and of peaking its emissions well before 2030. So there are policies and uh, there's very much a consciousness. It's in China's interest to do this.
0: My question then is, are we beginning to see in China the payoff from the green investment um, in renewables And are we seeing a similar payoff to this investment abroad anywhere?
1: Well, we're seeing a payoff in the sense that China has now the largest installed capacity of renewable energy by far. Um, At this point, they really need to upgrade the grid because uh, you you can reach a certain limit on the grid because of intermittency of renewables. So you need a, a, a more modern flexible grid to go any further than this or storage or you know it, there's a whole kind of development of the way we produce and deliver energy that's required but china's well down that road on the on the less positive side um and partly because of geostrategic tensions china still depends enormously on coal. Coal is what China has in great abundance if you're looking at fossil fuels. And, and the whole of the Industrial Revolution was built on coal, which is the dirtiest um, fossil fuel that you can use. And it's proving quite difficult for China to get off that dependence. We thought coal might have peaked in 2018, but they have just permitted a whole new set of coal-fired power stations. And that's partly because everything else has to be imported. And when geopolitical tensions rise, um, people get worried about energy security, and so they fall back on coal. And that's a real problem because China won't get its emissions down unless it really does that. And if you look at Belt and Road, for example, to to your point about external investments, you find a rather similar pattern that the first four or five years of investment in Belt and Road, say 2013 to 2018, the pattern is a very high percentage of investments have gone into energy projects and a very high percentage of those are high emitting fossil fuel. A lot of them are coal. So China was building new coal outside uh, China's borders for several years, and there are still quite a few in the pipeline. Xi Jinping has promised not to finance any new coal, but it hasn't stopped entirely in the sense that there were projects which have already been committed to. We we've, we've just published a piece on a Uh, a coal-fired power plant in, in Pakistan, in Gwadar, which had been stalled for years, which has just restarted as a project. So the pipeline hasn't come to a halt. And there were reasons for that. You know, it was very easy for big coal uh, big China coal, if you like, to go abroad, because it could get uh, backing from the, the banks, from the China Development Bank and, and other banks, as a big state-owned enterprise. Those companies could take the risk of going abroad, and they could put on the table a package which said, we will build your coal-fired power plant, we'll solve your energy problem, and we will finance it, and you, you can pay us back from, what it, from the profits it generates. And that was an appealing package to a lot of countries that had difficulty getting finance and were energy scarce. And they didn't really think about the implications of building new coal fired power stations at a time when, in order to meet the Paris uh, targets, we're really going to have to close coal down long before the lifetime of those coal fired power plants is over. So they are effectively building stranded assets. In the last two or three years, we've seen a shift in China's practice on certainly on building new coal, but also much more willingness to take the risk of building renewables at utility scale abroad. It didn't happen earlier because maybe five, six years ago, the renewables industry in China was largely private and they didn't have the backing of state finance, and they didn't have major assets in China, which could be taken as collateral against the risk that they took to go abroad. So it, it was very difficult for them. The change now is partly from the top that China's talking about greening the Belt and Road, but also that the big state-owned enterprises like um, the Three Gorges Dam Company, for example, are now building solar farms abroad. They're now investing in on an offshore wind. And so with that muscle of the state behind them, they can take the risk and they can propose to host countries that instead of building stranded assets, they get Uh, an energy system fit for the 21st century.
0: So speaking of the Belt and Road and thinking about strategies for mitigating the damage of fossil fuel exploitation, should we expect to see more kind of offsets in Chinese investments abroad? So I'm thinking specifically of the Congo now, given its extent, Chinese extensive investment in things like copper, um, coltan, and cobalt. Would it be possible to expect China to then invest in greener technologies for the exploitation of these goods or green technologies for powering um, Congolese mines, something like that?
1: Well, that would be um that would be very promising. To some extent, that depends on the host government. China has tended to say when it is reproached for, for example, building, uh, carbon-intensive um, energy projects. The Chinese response has tended to be that's what the host country wanted, and and we always uh, obey local rules and so on. Now that's a slightly disingenuous response because China can influence those rules and has certainly had them bent in a couple of of places that that we've looked at. Um, but it is nevertheless true that if a host country does not make demands of an investor, the investor you know, doesn't necessarily volunteer the highest standards. So if Congo is, is willing and able to make those demands, then Congo will, in the end, get a better deal.
0: Well, lastly, I'd like to turn a little bit to great power competition. Um, we heard at the Bali meetings between Xi Jinping and President Biden last year that they hope to work together on climate change initiatives given the state of relations between the two superpowers, has there been any progress on climate cooperation since then? And is there a likelihood of cooperation going forward?
1: I wish I could be more optimistic on this one. There was a time when um, there was very good cooperation between China and the United States after uh, President Obama and Xi Jinping, two years before the Paris Agreement, declared that they would work together for a Paris Agreement. And there was a whole raft of cooperative projects between the US and China. Sadly, those fell away under President Trump. And when President Biden tried to get them going again, the general tensions were really pretty severe. Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan is effectively suspended in, uh, the, the, the promise of, of cooperation that had been reached um, between John Kerry and Xi Jinhua in Glasgow at the previous COP. So what we're seeing is pretty thin. I mean, I think well below government level. Universities are still talking to each other. There's some practical research work going on, but it's on nothing like the scale uh, that, that we saw before. And frankly, the world needs it. Um, there, was, there was, for quite some time, people in the climate community thought that climate cooperation, because it's clearly in everybody's interests, could be shielded from the bad effects of the of the deterioration of the politics. But that is proving more and more difficult. And um, unfortunately, I fear we're going to see more competition rather than than cooperation. So I guess the challenge now is to make that competition constructive.
0: Thank you, Isabel, for providing us with such an enlightening discussion of China's approach to climate change.
1: Thank you for having me. It's been a real pleasure.
0: It's our pleasure. That was Isabel Hilton, the founder of China Dialogue. This podcast is a co-production of the Eurasia Group Foundation and the SOAS China Institute, part of the University of London. And you can find out more about the Institute's courses and research at soas.ac.uk. But for now, that's all from us here at the China in Context podcast team.